Hey friends, this is Rick Lee James. I am so glad that you are listening to this podcast today, and I want to ask a favor of you. You know, this podcast is free, and it's always going to be free, but we do have a lot of costs around here. Not only making podcasts, but making new music, paying for production costs, website fees, hosting fees, doing research, marketing, materials, and so much more. And you can help us with that if you visit patreon.com slash James, where for as little as a dollar a month or even a one-time donation, you can help me to continue doing the work that I'm doing. It would mean so much, and it takes such a very little amount of your time. So if you have a chance, go to patreon.com slash James and thank you in advance for any help that you can give. Welcome to Voices in My Head, the official podcast of me, Rick Lee James. I'm a recording artist, a singer, a songwriter, an author, a worship leader, and an ordained minister in the Church of the Nazarene. The Voices in My Head podcast is where I discuss music, movies, books, pop culture, theology, and more with friends, colleagues, and sometimes just by myself. Now make sure to let me know what you think of today's episode by leaving me a review on iTunes or by tweeting at me at RickLeeJames on Twitter. And please join my mailing list at RickLeeJames.com where you can receive an email every time a new episode is released. And by the way, in case you're interested in a daily dose of kindness and encouragement beyond this podcast, I also run the Twitter account at MrRogersSay where I post daily quotes from Fred Rogers, one of the voices in my head. Well, I guess that's it for the intro, so sit back, relax, and listen to the latest episode of Voices in My Head. Welcome back to Voices in My Head. As always, I'm your host, Rick Lee James, and I'm so glad that you're here with me again this week for what I know is going to be a very interesting episode. At least I think it's very interesting. I don't have a guest per se this week on the show, but I kind of do because this week I'm going to be sharing uh, a rather lengthy article from David French. Uh, David is a, a writer that I really admire. I've reached out to him a number of times, but I haven't been able to uh, get any contact back from him. I know he's very busy and has quite a lot of following, but he's the senior editor of The Dispatch, and he's also a columnist for Time. Uh, he's the he's the author of books like Rise of Isis, A Threat We Can't Ignore, and his new book just released, which is called Divided We Fall, and uh, he's quite an intelligent person, and he has uh, a really great uh, podcast, and he, he's also um, an author, he's an attorney, he's an Iraq veteran, he writes about law, politics, faith, culture, and uh, maybe a reason I like him so much, um, he taught, he writes about the superiority of DC over Marvel, so, you know, comic book fans uh, rejoice in that one. But I wanted to, to share an article uh, tonight just because uh, it's, it's something that's been on my mind. It was good food for thought for me when I first found it. It was published back on August 23rd. And one of the most unhelpful things that I think we can do when we're having conversations um, about the topic of abortion uh, is to start calling each other names. And uh, one of the quickest ways to stop a conversation is to start 
calling people murderers and baby killers and and not really talk about the nuance that's behind it and you'll know as you heard from the podcast last week which really inspires this episode um, when we talked about um, pro-life and the new movie order of rights which I still haven't had a chance to see yet but I hope that you enjoyed our discussion and uh, and with Shannon last week and um, I wanted to kind of piggyback on that because today I voted I did early voting and um it got me thinking about the way we vote and as you know um i talk a lot about the kingdom of god and i don't put a lot of stock in american politics and things like that but it did get me wondering like you know are, are things even true that we say about like who we vote for and how it matters uh, on issues like abortion and and david uh, french he he actually has such great insight in this uh, article that i'm going to share tonight and so i hope that you'll be able to appreciate what this is on voices in my head podcast.com i'm actually leaving a link for you to find to this article so you can read it so you can go back and maybe take parts out of it um I wish I could have gotten a hold of David just to make sure it was okay that I read this, but I'm putting every link that I can to him on our page. I want to make sure you go to frenchpress.thedispatch.com and know that these are not my words. Uh, this is written by uh, David French, and he really has done some some deep writing and deep deep thinking on this uh, topic. Uh, he is a conservative. He is a, a pro-life person. And yet, this article's not going to make people on any side of the debate happy. <laughs> uh, so his article is called, the same thing I'm calling this one, uh, Do Pro-Lifers Who Reject Trump Have Blood on Their Hands? Taking a look at the true state of the pro-life argument in America. Again, this was published on August 23rd on frenchpress.thedispatch.com. I have a direct link on voicesinmyheadpodcast.com. There's a couple graphs that he shares, which I obviously can't read the graphs to you, and, and it might be helpful if you could go find them. So I will refer to them in this article, um, but I'm not going to read them. I am hopeful that David will be able to come on the show and have a, a deeper conversation on this and some other topics. But I'm going to dive right in because it is a lengthy article, and I hope it'll give you something to think about. You don't have to agree with it, but I think you you do have to agree that it's very well thought out, very well researched, and uh, it's, it's something that we can all grow on in our thoughts and views. So this is how it starts. David writes, I don't often post the trolling, angry tweets that I receive on a daily basis, but I thought I'd make an exception to launch a longer, important discussion that we simply don't see enough in American Christianity. How do politics impact abortion rates in the United States? It has been almost 50 years since Roe v. Wade was decided. What have we learned? Or let's put it another way, since I'm not voting for Donald Trump in 2020, is this tweeter correct? Will I have the blood of dead unborn children on my hands? And he reads a, uh, he in inserts a tweet actually from a person very angry at him who calls David. He says, you are an antichrist that bears false witness daily. And should your new side somehow win, you will have the blood of dead unborn children on your hands when you face judgment. Back to David now. He says, I'm going to give a short answer to this question and a long answer. The short answer is no. The long answer, which is going to dive deep into the legal, political, and cultural realities of the abortion debate, isn't likely to please any partisans. So buckle up. Decades of data, 
and decades of legal, political, and cultural developments have combined to teach us a few simple realities about abortion in the United States. Presidents, or number one, presidents have been irrelevant to the abortion rate. Number two, judges have been forces of stability, not change, in abortion law. Number three, state legislatures have had more influence on abortion than Congress. Number four, even if Roe is overturned, abortion will most likely be unchanged in the United States. And number five, the pro-life movement has an enormous cultural advantage. In the points, if the points above don't seem to make sense to you, then you're likely unfamiliar with the way that decisive numbers of Americans think about abortion. Not in crystal clear terms of life versus choice or baby versus clump of cells, but through much hazier and subjective reasoning. This means that absolutists are consistently frustrated with the political process. Unless Americans change, that process will not yield the results they seek. But while many millions of Americans are hazy about the politics and morality of abortion, it's apparent they have a bias about the practice of abortion. In their own lives, pregnancies are both increasingly rare and increasingly precious, and thus abortion is in steady decline, no matter who sits in the Oval Office. Before I walk through the points above, I want to share with you two key pieces of data. The first is a chart showing the American abortion rate since Roe. It's compiled by the Pro-Choice Guttmacher Institute, and while the data isn't perfect, it's perhaps the best data set we have. Uh, again, refer to the article at frenchpressthedispatch.com to see the chart. I'm going to go on from here. It says, I've posted this before, and a number of commenters have responded with two immediate questions. Does this account for medication abortions? Also, isn't this decrease merely an artifact of declining abortion birth rates? After all, if there are fewer pregnancies per woman, then it stands to reason there will be fewer abortions. The first response is easy. Guttmacher data takes into account medication abortions and notes that the overall rate is declining in spite of an increase in medication abortions. But what about America's declining birth rate? That response is also easy. Yes, America's birth rate has declined, but at nothing like the rate of decline in the abortion rate since 1980. At the same time, we also have data not just about the abortion rate, but also about the abortion ratio. The number of abortions per 1,000 pregnancies that end either in abortion or live birth. And that abortion rate is steeped in decline as well. Guttmacher reports a 13% decline in that ratio between 2011 and 2017, a period that represents the last five years of the Obama presidency and the first year of the Trump administration. Broader historical data shows the ratio peaking and staying relatively high throughout the 1980s at between 346 and 364 abortions per 1,000 pregnancies before plunging since 1990 to the current ratio of 184. With these numbers as a backdrop, let's walk through politics, law, and culture. Number one, presidents don't really matter. 
Let's begin with a pop quiz. Who is the most pro-life president in the modern history of the United States? A surprising number of contemporary Republicans have a quick answer, Donald Trump. Not only is the answer wrong, other presidents have passed more substantial pro-life policies. The fact that any person could credibly think that's the case is symbolic of historic presidential irrelevance. For example, Trump is rightly praised for enacting Title X regulations that required physical and financial separation of Title X projects from abortion-related activities. This decision has caused Planned Parenthood to withdraw from the Title X program. But the Trump rule is less strict than Title X rules promulgated under the Reagan administration. Moreover, Trump has hardly defunded Planned Parenthood. In fact, Planned Parenthood received record-high taxpayer funding in 2019, performed a record-high number of abortions, and its affiliates received $80 million in coronavirus bailouts earlier this year. Unlike George W. Bush, who signed into law a Born Alive Infant Protection Bill and a partial birth abortion ban, Trump has not signed a single significant piece of pro-life legislation. But even Bush's historic legislation merely nibbed at the edges of the abortion challenge. It is exceedingly rare for babies to be born alive after botched abortions, and partial birth abortion was barbaric, but thankfully infrequent. Yes, Republican presidents use the bully pulpit to advance the pro-life cause, and Trump is to be commended for speaking to the March for Life. And yes, Democratic presidents use the bully pulpit to hail reproductive choice. Remember when President Obama said that if his daughters made a mistake, he didn't want them to be punished with a baby? Regardless of the tweaks to the law, regardless of the bully pulpit, look back again at the numbers above. The abortion rate declines. The abortion ratio declines. They declined during pro-life and pro-choice presidencies. They declined when George W. Bush was president. And they declined even more when Barack Obama was president. If the decades-long trend holds, they'll decline no matter who wins in November. But astute readers will know I haven't mentioned perhaps the president's primary theoretical influence on abortion, judicial nominations. Have presidents or the justices they've appointed meaningfully moved the needle on abortion since Roe? No, they have not. Let's take a closer look. Number two, Supreme Court justices are instruments of stability in abortion law. I started the last section with a pop quiz. Let's start this section with another. How many of the current Supreme Court justices have recently and unequivocally stated that Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey, the two cases securing a constitutional right to an abortion, are bad law? Exactly one out of nine. It's George H.W. Bush appointee Clarence Thomas. The rest just voted to apply some variant of the Casey undue burden standard to a Louisiana statute requiring abortion doctors to have admitting privileges at a local hospital. The court struck down the Louisiana law by a complicated 4-1-4 vote. But one thing was clear. Only Justice Thomas cast the abortion right in doubt, and no one else joined his dissent. In fact, abortion jurisprudence has been relatively stable and intact since 1992. To be fair, the state of Louisiana did not ask the court to overturn Roe, 
but Thomas stated his opinion. Any justice could have joined him. They chose not to. CNN later reported that Trump's most recent Supreme Court nominee, Brett Kavanaugh, had urged the justices to sidestep the merits of the case entirely. Now, you might object to that Pre- you might object that previous presidents were Republicans in name only, rhinos. They didn't have the guts to pick good justices. They wouldn't fight like Trump does to put his man or woman on the court. But here again, the historical record is not their friend. Even though previous justices were subject to filibusters, Republican presidents did, in reality, succeed in putting on the court justice after justice who had expressed opposition to Roe including some of the most infamous abortion squishes in modern Supreme Court history. As Carrie Severino noted recently, even Justices David Souter, Anthony Kennedy, and Sandra Day O'Connor critiqued Roe before they joined the court. Souter filed a brief that called abortion the killing of unborn children. Kennedy once called Roe the Dred Scott of our time. O'Connor wrote that the court's abortion decisions have already worked a major distortion in the court's constitutional jurisprudence. Each of those justices joined the majority in Casey to preserve the right to an abortion. For almost three decades, the Supreme Court lesson has been clear. Put not your trust in judges to rescue America from the moral stain of abortion. Number three, state legislatures are more effective than Congress. One of the most frustrating aspects of modern right-wing political debate has been the claim that the conservative movement didn't win before Trump. A conservative movement that was raised from the ground up to celebrate federalism ended up disregarding immense and substantive gains in state government. For millions of populists, all that really mattered was the presidency. For many reasons, including the state of abortion law, this is a profound mistake. In reality, the astonishing advance of the conservative movement in American states during the Obama administration yielded more concrete pro-life gains than anything the Trump administration has accomplished. Again, here's a Guttmacher chart, which I will ask you to go visit at frenchpressthedispatch.com. In fact, given this reality, it's not too much to say that losing or winning state elections has proven to be more directly material to the law of abortion than 40 years of federal electoral contests. To understand the extent of state regulation, this piece compiles the sheer totals of state laws that regulate public funding, gestational requirements, waiting periods, parental involvement, physician involvement, and a host of other regulations and restrictions. But given the extent of state legislation, doesn't this make the Supreme Court even more important? After all, the court ultimately rules on the constitutionality of these regulations, and while overruling Roe and Casey won't ban abortion nationally, it will grant these same states the ability to more heavily regulate abortion or even ban it within their borders. Not so fast. Number four, overruling Roe won't touch the vast majority of American abortions. This section might be the most dispiriting for pro-life readers. After all, overruling Roe has been the holy grail for national pro-life movement for decades. End Roe and you liberate the states. End Roe and you can finally start working to ban abortion. So long as Roe stays, the law will remain unjust. It will permit the killing of innocent unborn children. But America is a very big, culturally and religiously diverse country. 
support or opposition to Roe is hardly spread out evenly across the nation. And while there are many states that regulate abortions as much as they can, other states have passed laws to expand abortion access. And almost 100 million Americans live in states that provides public funding for abortions. The Hyde Amendment prohibits direct federal Medicaid funding for abortion, but it does not bind states. One of the results of cultural and legal diversity is that states have widely different abortion rates, and many of the states that have passed the strictest abortion laws already had low abortion rates. This interactive chart is a bit outdated. The data is from 2014, but still useful. It shows abortion rates varying from a low of 5 per 1,000 women in Utah to a high of 29 in New York State. That's immense variation. The consequence is that overruling Roe would have a disproportionate effect in states with already low abortion rates. A recent study calculated a potential 32.8% decrease in the abortion rate for the regions at high risk of banning abortions, but for the nation as a whole, the abortion rate would likely shrink by only 12.8%. That's right. Even if the pro-life legal movement locates its holy grail, almost 90% of the American abortion regime would remain intact. The work of the pro-life movement would have to continue, largely as it continues today. Number five, but still the pro-life movement has one immense advantage. Earlier in this newsletter, I described the thinking of millions of Americans as hazy and subjective. They don't fit neatly into a pro-life or pro-choice binary, either philosophically or politically. In fact, this muddled reality is one reason for the enduring abortion stalemate in American national politics. There, are ju there just aren't enough single-issue voters to materially tip the balance of power. But yet, despite the muddle, the abortion rate and ratio continues to fall. And it's fallen dramatically. Why? Last month, researchers at Notre Dame issued a remarkable and interesting study called How Americans Understand Abortion. Their study wasn't a simple poll that asked its subjects if they were pro-life or pro-choice, or whether they supported Roe. Instead, they conducted 217 in-depth interviews of a representative sample of the American population. Interestingly, abortion was not disclosed as the topic of the interview during recruitment. The findings are fascinating. I could write an entire newsletter on its contents, but here are the top-line conclusions. Number one, Americans don't talk much about abortion. Number two, survey statistics oversimplify America's abortion attitudes. Number three, Position labels are imprecise substitutes for actual views toward abortion. Number four, abortion talk concerns as much what happens before and after as it does abortion itself. Number five, Americans ponder a good life as much as they do life. Number six, abortion is not merely political to everyday Americans, but intimately personal. And number seven, Americans don't want abortion. Each point is worth discussing. Discussing, Each point is vital. I found the first point particularly poignant and the last point particularly pertinent. How many truthful, 
heartfelt conversations have you had in your entire life with friends or family about abortion? And no, I'm not talking about political conversations. I'm talking about genuine, transparent, and intimate conversation about personal lives. In reading the study, it became clear to me that if you want to save an unborn life, then improving the conditions of conception, birth, and postnatal life for mother, father, and child are vitally important. This is how real people work through abortion questions. And here is a bit from the article. He is talking about the study from Notre Dame. Americans focus much of their attention on abortion's preconditions, alternatives, and after-effects. We heard contemplations such as, what was the nature of the relationship between conceiving partners? Was it consensual? How did they approach pregnancy prevention, if at all? Was there sufficient knowledge about potential outcomes? What kinds of support, financial and relational, are available to people facing unplanned pregnancies? What are the states of prenatal development? What health situations would put a mother or baby at risk? What does it take to raise a child financially and parentally? What impact does having a child have on professional aspirations or on reputation or on permanent ties between conceiving partners? What roles do or can men and women play in parenthood? How accessible is a choice like adoption? What are the conditions of children in foster care? This list of questions continues. The point here is that opinions on myriad social issues and corollary personal decisions frame attitudes well beyond the procedural yes, no, or right, wrong of an abortion decision. Now back to David French again. So, if all these questions come into play, and if the combination of Americans who are solidly pro-choice or more moderate in their attitudes vastly outnumber those Americans who are solidly pro-life from conception until natural death, then what is the pro-life movement's immense advantage? It's the last point. It's the fact that abortion is not ultimately what people want. Here back to the Notre Dame study. None of the Americans we interviewed talked about abortion as a desirable good. Views range in terms of abortion's preferred availability, justification, or need, but Americans do not uphold abortion as a happy event or something they want more of. From restrictive to ambivalent to permissive, we instead heard about the desire to prevent, reduce, and eliminate potentially difficult or unexpected circumstances that predicate abortion decisions whether of relationships, failed contraception, lack of education, financial hardship, or the like. Even those most supportive of abortion's legality nonetheless talk about it as hard, serious, not happy, or benign at best. Stories from those who have had abortions are likewise harrowing, even when the person retelling it retains a commitment to abortion's availability. Now back to David French again. This is not the shout-your-abortion mindset of a tiny, tiny online fringe. The nation is full of women who want to have their children. In other words, pro-life Americans may not be approaching a cultural bias in favor of their political position, but they are approaching a culture that is biased in favor of the pro-life outcome, the birth of a child who is loved. 
And that bias is manifesting itself in a decades-long shift to a culture that is viewing pregnancy as increasingly purposeful and increasingly precious. I'm not arguing that national politics don't matter at all. A blue wave could end the Hyde Amendment and result in direct funding of abortions. The best available data indicates that would result in more abortions, though it's far from clear that it would stop the overall decline in abortion rates and ratios, and it's a reason why pro-life Americans should resist a democratic takeover of the Senate. But if you're pro-life, the encouraging reality is those things that matter most, your relationships and your local political community, are things over which you have the most influence. The things that matter the least, the presidency and national politics, are those things most removed from your daily life. But I've been around the pro-life movement long enough to know that we often get this exactly backwards. We're most passionate about the president. Yet too many of us are less interested in the crisis pregnancy center down the street. Without forsaking national politics, we can reverse that intensity. And if we reverse that intensity through loving, intentional outreach, we will reinforce the very decision the data and our experience tells us a woman wants to make. One last thing. Last week I promised new music. I promise I deliver. Longtime readers will know that I love We the Kingdom, a band from my church in Franklin, Tennessee. They've got a new album out, and I love this song. It expresses the sheer exuberance of spiritual rebirth and joy. And he shares a link to the music video for We the Kingdom and their song, Waking Up. Um, again, I want to encourage you to go to this article on FrenchPressTheDispatch.com. It's maybe a great conversation starter, and I want to thank uh, David French for writing it. The article is called, Do Pro-Lifers Who Reject Trump Have Blood on Their Hands? And uh, it's, it's thought-provoking, and it's something that I think people who care about the issue of abortion really should take the time to read. You may not agree with everything David says, but I don't think you can deny his heart behind it. And, uh, and I appreciate him sharing it. Again, I hope I can have David on eventually. He's been hard to reach, but... Um, He's really somebody I enjoy following online and uh, reading his different blog posts and has some, some great books that I also encourage you to check out. I think he's one of the, the really honest and um, very good conservative voices out there today, uh, which can be few and far between. Uh, it's hard to find those voices sometimes, and, and he's he's one of the good ones to hear. So uh, I guess that's it for this week, and uh, I guess if David was my guest, he kind of was because I read his his article word for word, so I guess I should say, David French, thank you for being one of the voices in my head this week. Uh, hey, we've got some great episodes coming up with some great guests who actually will be here to talk, and I look forward to sharing those with you. In the meantime, uh, drop me a line sometime, either on Twitter at Rick Lee James or uh, by email, rick at rickleejames.com. I'd love to hear from you, and uh, thank you so much for listening to Voices in My Head. God bless you, and we'll be back here next week, God willing. Thank you for joining me here this week on Voices in My Head. I hope you'll visit me on my website at rickleejames.com where you can find out more about me, get my music on vinyl and CD, follow my blog, and even schedule me for a concert or a speaking engagement. Better yet, even a book signing in your neighborhood. 
You can find all that and more at rickleejames.com. Also, it would mean a great deal to me if you could write a review of this podcast on iTunes. The more positive reviews that we receive, the more visible this podcast will be online. And now, for the benediction. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. God bless you, and thank you for listening to Voices in My Head.